This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Steve Springsteel, Chief Financial Officer of BetterWorks, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 658. Tupperware was ready to, to really transform itself and to, to turn around the performance of the business. They recognized that the traditional method of just direct selling um, wasn't necessarily going to work and that it also had to change because direct selling had changed. And so I think as the company looked and toward me, they saw that what I brought to the table was innovation through technology. Until I arrived, we were really still taking orders by hand. We were using fax machines still. And so, you know, the technological advancements with digital were very important. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Sandra Harris of Tupperware Brands. Tupperware Brands has been enjoying some upbeat headlines recently. After announcing its quarterly earnings in late October, the company's stock jumped more than 30%. The good news arrived just 18 months after Sandra Harris first stepped into the CFO office at Tupperware. Harris, alongside CEO Miguel Fernandez, has been adroitly executing a turnaround at the company best known for its food storage containers. We speak to Sandra Harris about that turnaround and much more after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Sandra Harris, CFO of Tupperware. We all know that brand for sure. Sandra, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. It's always intriguing to learn about some of these well-known brands uh, from the last century, how they've continued to evolve and open new chapters of their history, and it appears that you're helping write one right now. Meanwhile, we always begin uh, with this question, which asks you to look back and share with us some of those experiences you feel prepared you to take on this role and other CFO roles. What comes to mind? Yeah, it's terrific, Jack. Thank you. You know, my journey actually began before it was acceptable for women to wear pants in a big six accounting firm. And when you pulled your laptop behind you as you traveled through the airports. So, you know, things have truly accelerated uh, from there. Big six became the big four. Laptops got a lot lighter. And I moved on to the other side pretty quickly and entered into industry. And I found myself doing two things that I said I would never, ever do. And that's taking on roles that I didn't uh, want to participate in. So manufacturing accounting. And I found myself living in Texas, something I said I wouldn't do. And so that actually leads to some themes around my career. The first is 
be willing to take experiences that you said you'd never do because it'll stretch you and it'll teach you things you never thought you'd have. And then travel the world. You know, inclusion and diversity is really, really important and it opens your mind and then build great teams. And so to my experiences, you know, back to the two things I said I wouldn't do, I found myself in industry working in a, a, a manufacturing company and living in Texas. And, you know, both opened my eyes to what, what could be, you know, working in manufacturing, I discovered my love of operations. I walked floors, I walked distribution centers, and not only did I have my financial side, but I was loving the fact that I was learning about the operations of the company and how powerful that was. And because I had the chance to do that across the world, it also opened up my love for diversity and inclusion. As we opened manufacturing in China and in uh, Thailand, we did greenfields, um, we bought companies. It was really exciting to, to see what the world had to offer. And then to the point that I found myself living in Texas, you know, it was the biggest blessing of my life. I actually had both of my children in Texas. So now I have a proud affinity to Texas because uh, I have two card carrying Texans. So, uh, you know, really opened my, my opportunity. Now, one of the companies that you made an investment of time with certainly was VF Corp. And you came up through the ranks. And of course, that's where you had been a CFO prior to that. But it seems to me this was really quite the... Um, quite the jump for you or you developed over time. And again, you were there nearly uh, 10 years. So I was hoping you might just reflect a little bit for us as to why you made the investment you did there. It looks like it paid off, no question. Um, but uh, finance leaders can get a little edgy if they, uh, and aspiring finance leaders, if they invest that type of time with one company. Can you reflect a little on that? What made you decide to stay? Yeah, Jack, it was just the continued experiences that I was gaining at, at VF. You know, once again, I, um, I had worked my way into a CFO role where I was leading all of the business. And to go to VF, I found myself right back into operations, right, with a supply chain. But it was enormously exciting because VF was on a trajectory of going from $6 billion to $12 billion. And they knew to do that, they needed to fuel that growth by optimizing their supply chain. And so they were looking for a finance leader to do that. So five years went by in a flash. Um, I partnered with the president of the supply chain, uh, developed the five-year strategy for how we would fuel the growth of VF. And you know, we worked across the globes and across all of the brands to really drive um, savings. And so one of the opportunities that I got was to lead the procurement function. And you know, I developed with a, a team of people um, and, and some, some consultants, a, a five-step process that generated $100 million worth of uh, savings that we then reinvested back into that business to help us grow at VF. And so, you know, I stayed there because there were so many exciting experiences and opportunities. Um, and, you know, having spent that time in supply chain and having Asia sourcing report to me, it gave me the opportunity later in my career at VF to, you know, run the Asia Brands office as a CFO, as we looked for a permanent CFO. And if you know how exciting Asia was during that time, it was one of our most complex businesses. It had every retail channel, whether it was brick and mortar, e-commerce, uh, distributor partnerships, it really was an exciting place to be. And you know, I really got to see the inner workings of what worked well and didn't. And because of that experience that I got to experience in Hong Kong, you know, that led into the opportunity for me to have financial roles in the retail segment of our business, as well as shared services 
which then led me into the CIO role, which is where, you know, I finished at VF. And, and that was enormously exciting because being in the CIO role, you know, it was when we were switching to retail and really needed to become a digitally focused, consumer focused IT department. And that's why I stayed for 10 years. It was, it was a great um, learning experience and I had a lot of opportunities. You, you sort of uh, suggested that you have sort of fallen in love with, with, with manufacturing. Do you, view yourself as a manufacturing CFO today? Any chance you'd ever uh, venture into a different realm? Well, it's manufacturing and distribution and, and SNOP, all the things that make it work, right? I always say that you can you can have the best advertising and you can have the best selling techniques, but unless you really have good product and you can get that product when the consumer wants it, it doesn't matter, right? And I think that's why I love operations so much is that it's the backbone of what makes a company successful. And uh, so now, you know, I have that opportunity at Tupperware. Um, my love for operations, the experiences that I had working in that supply chain at VF and also, you know, previously at Wilson Art opened the door for me now to become the chief operating officer and CFO for Tupperware brands. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, to help to optimize our supply chain to make us even stronger and better. You know, we all think we know Tupperware, but could you tell us a little bit about it today? What don't we know? Maybe how big this company is today? I think we'd all be amazed, uh, but tell us about Tupperware. Yeah, so most people, especially in the U.S., think of Tupperware um, as the brand that my, my grandmother had, right? I mean, they really do because it's been handed down from generation to generation. And what's important about that is it's really an iconic brand. It's a, it's a brand that has resonated through the generations um, because of the high quality product that we have. It, it continues to be handed down. But what people don't know about Tupperware is that we've continued to innovate. And, you know, we are able to, you know, sell our product through this amazing network of independent Salesforce members that love and represent our products so well. And, um, you know, over time, what's happened is that some of the innovation may not be making its way to the market. And so people don't actually know that Tupperware has a lot of different product offerings that range not only from the traditional plastic that individuals think about, you know, the plastic bowls and the food storage containers, but we also offer a lot of innovative um, products like the MicroPro Grill. Um, you know, the MicroPro Grill is an amazing technology that, you know, if you looked at it, you'd think, how can I put that in the microwave? It has, it has metal on it. You're not supposed to put metal in the microwave. But yet you put this into the microwave and in three minutes you have a product that's just as crispy or just as, um, you know, it's the same quality that you would have if you grilled an item on your grill, but in much faster time. And so that's what's exciting about the future of Tupperware is we can take those products and start to really reintroduce this iconic brand to consumers with new innovative technologies. Wow, that's interesting. Did not know about the MicroPro Grill. Going to investigate further on that. I'm thinking uh, when you were one of among perhaps many uh, CFO candidates for the role, I'm thinking that your supply chain experience might have helped set you apart. But uh, set me straight. What, what do you think set you apart for this role? I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, Tupperware was ready to... Uh, to really transform itself and to, to turn around the performance of the business. And so they recognized that the traditional method of just direct selling um, wasn't necessarily gonna work and that it also had to change because direct selling had changed. And so I think as the company looked and toward me, they saw that what I brought to the table was uh, innovation through technology, 
until I arrived, we were really still taking orders by hand. We were using fax machines still. And so, you know, the technological advancements with digital were very important. Um, and so having been a CIO and, and having that technology journey, I think that was important. The supply chain was very important because we knew as we had to think more about the consumer that the traditional wait 14 days to place the order and then another 14 days to deliver the product, we knew we needed a supply chain that could support what Amazon brought to the world, which is next day delivery or two day delivery. And so that took you know a different look at the supply chain. And then from the financial position, leveraging across the enterprise, um, you know, we had run autonomously in 80 different markets and we, we didn't necessarily leverage our spending across the enterprise. And so back to that procurement project I was talking about earlier, you know, I think they saw that I could drive synergies throughout the business. And so it was the combination of those factors that, um, you know, led me to the uh, to Tupperware and the fact that we could turn this brand around together. Okay, wait, wait, I, I, uh, I'm a little surprised or maybe a little startled uh, by what you, uh, some of what you just shared, which let me just uh, clarify here. So when you arrive in 2019, are you saying that um, Tupperware was still uh, taking orders uh, on paper? Yes. When I showed up in April, <laughs> we were still in the U.S. taking orders by hand and um, submitting them actually sometimes on fax machines. And so, um, you know, we, we, we may still do that today, but we have quickly launched tools that allow us to take orders. We have mobile uh, ability in, in places like Mexico. We also relaunched a website here in the U.S. in October of last year, and we've we've partnered with third-party providers, um, cloud-based solutions across the globe to to really launch fast our e-commerce initiatives. And, and quite frankly, it's what made us successful as we went into COVID-19. Uh, we were able to pivot to a much more digital environment because we made those investments pretty quickly as we ended 19. Well, tell us a little bit about the uh, the finance uh, function. Then, uh, curious what you found there was uh, were they was it using technology, and uh, did you have to reorganize things in some way to uh, accommodate where you want to take the business? Yes, I would say that Tupperware was more traditional accounting when I when I came in, uh, focused on you know really strong external reporting, you know gap based accounting, uh, really managing closing the books and the records, but but not um, a lot of FP&A finance planning and analysis, tech, uh, really analytical understanding of the business and and being able to use those analytics and drive the business and so. Yes, we recently uh, organized a business and analytics team. Uh, we, we actually have hired someone that worked with this management team and another direct seller, knows the power of unlocking the data and understanding the behaviors of our sales force. And we're now starting to you know, take that data, put it into tools where our business partners can really analyze what's happening in their businesses and that, that will help us to grow the business. And you saw those results in Q2 and Q3. We began to segment our sales force through that data and that business analytics function. And now we understand the behaviors of our, our people that are coming in to buy product and we're starting to approach them and how they want to be approached versus the traditional methods. Normally here we ask uh, about your lines of sight into the organization and how you went about trying to measure certain business dynamics or trying to look at how the company was performing. I have to believe there was some level of urgency though that you experienced uh as you come into this organization i mean did you come in and say hey i can't see around corners 
how do we we get these numbers earlier, sooner, better? Uh, what would you share with us? Yeah, so actually the journey um, has evolved. So when I first stepped in, it was critical to really understand our financial situation. So with the trend of sales turning down, having analytics around where we were from a capital allocation structure perspective were really important. So early on, you know, I would say I spent most of my time educating management and, and even, you know, informing the board of where we were and that we were headed into a crisis. And so, you know, a lot of analytics were done around just, you know, our, our debt situation, um, our, our cash flow situation in light of the trends, and then just really being transparent about, you know, where we were as a company and what steps we needed to take. And so, you know, that transparency and information led us to, um, you know, making a transition in the leadership team led us to renegotiating with our banks. And then, you know, recently we just uh, announced that we've, we've now got a commitment to satisfy our, our bond obligations. And so that was sort of traditional accounting. But while we were doing all that, the key was our sales trends were down. And so, you know, the line of sight that was so important is that we did not get good analytics around why the sales were going down. And so that's why we quickly organized to really start to, to dive into the data and see what the data was telling us about why our sales were down. And you know, I think the big uh, reveal that happened is that we were a company focused on recruiting, you know, recruiting people to come in and sell our products. And until we segmented the, the people who were coming in to buy, you know, we didn't recognize that a lot of people were coming in to buy a great product and they wanted to be approached very differently. And that really was the pivot point that happened in Q2 and Q3 is as we started to really understand our sales data, we were able to then start to target, you know, our, our buyers, our sellers in the way that they want to. And, and that was the important um, piece that, that we needed line of sight to. And does this pull on your experience? You mentioned distribution, of course, as being one of the areas uh, that you had a good deal of experience from the past. Uh, and I'm wondering if you had to build a, like a, a channel, uh, you know, you had to build a, uh, a series of sellers or resellers uh, of Tupperware. Is that what we're talking about here? Um, and, and how do you incent them without giving, you know, impacting your margins too much? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. So that, that's actually sort of the next step. We have had other channels. We, we call them B2B or business partnerships. And, and, and Tupperware had those traditionally about $30 million a year you know, out of our 1.7 billion. But we, we were very cautious about them. So to your point, how do you do that with a traditional direct selling channel and open up new channels? And you know what we found is as we switched to digital, our sales force is realizing the power of having those types of relationships because it, it does give more brand awareness. It gives more brand access and that naturally helps to lift their business as well. So yes, we, we now uh, not only are, are looking at our current way to go to market, which is the sales force and segmenting them, but we're also, we've hired great talent to help extend those types of partnerships and those types of distribution channels that are, are really important to continue to grow the brand. Well, you uh, have sort of a regular meeting, I would imagine, with your FP&A team. I'd love to know what your FP&A team leader would tell us, this is what Sandra's going to ask us today, or this is the number that Sandra's always uh, asking to make the center of the table for a discussion. What, what would that be? What are, what are you asking that team to, to populate their, their statements and forms with? Yeah. So, you know, today we're heavily focused on that segmentation work. So that question is, you know, 
has switched to instead of recruiting to retention. And so we're looking at how do we retain, you know, these 3 million people that come in to, to really sell and represent our product. And so, um, you know, it's a total shift after, you know, 70 years of really focusing on recruiting. And they know that it's not, not sufficient enough to just tell me, hey, our retention has improved by X, or we retain, you know, 12% of our workforce after six months. The, the next question is why? What, what did we do? What did we do to you know, improve that retention, or if the retention is slipping, you know, what did we not do and how do we continue to improve? And so it's just a constant uh, view and, and constant analysis on that data and then sharing it across our markets, right? So if we if we see retention going, you know, re improving really well in one country, how do we take what we learn there and, and share that with another country so that, you know, we know that if we can retain people that the cells naturally lift. And so, you know, those are the ongoing conversations today is understanding the, the you know, who, what and why of, of what's happening within our results. So just a, a point of clarification for me and, and, and perhaps our, our listeners as well. Uh, I remember uh, the approach, the business model that incorporated uh, Tupperware parties and where you had outside sellers. Is that is this building on top of that or t tell us how this works? So, so they are independent sellers. They do not. They're not employees of, of Tupperware. So we support them through, you know, providing them with content and uh, sales of tools and devices, but they they actually work for themselves. So they're individual entrepreneurs. And and that's the case of whether they're in a traditional party model, like here in the U.S., people remember the party. Um, you know, the party's gone from being in the house to being on Zoom or Facebook or other, um, you know, digital solutions. But yes, I mean, they still host parties. Uh, we do have, though, the same... We have independent sellers in other locations like Brazil that do one, more one-on-one -on -one selling. And then we also have a um, independent seller who owns a, what we call a studio in, in China. We own six, more than 6,000 studios in China. But again, Tupperware doesn't own those studios. The independent seller does. And we provide them with the branding and the marketing and, and the product. Well, it's been interesting in our discussions with finance leaders. It seems so many of them have become more focused on the workforce, on their people in light of the pandemic. And uh, they will frequently tell us, uh, of course, that their people are their company's most valuable asset, uh, and which has led us to ask the question, well, how are you measuring that asset in terms of employee attrition or uh, compensation? Are you satisfied with the structure or the philosophy of the company in terms of compensation? Does that need to change? Is there anything you can share with us about the, the workforce and your mindset related to it? Yeah, so, you know, it, the turnaround plan includes organizational redesign. So we've been in a process of really redesigning the organization to uh, more align with the new structure and the new way we go to market. So, you know, in the middle of COVID-19, we were already working on organizational redesign. It, it was part of our, our turnaround plan that is driving 180 million of savings, right? So, so we did quickly organize around understanding our, our workforce. Now, in relation to COVID-19, you know, our priority was our employees. So, you know, we ensured that we had the safety measures. We ensured that we, you know, took the right precautions. We followed what was required by the different locations. You know, we're a global company. So every market had different rules around COVID. And, you know, our first focus and priority was, was making sure they were safe. 
we also have a different dynamic because to your question earlier, the sales force, even though they don't work for us, it's very important that we also think of them. And so we also wanted to make sure that we had ways for them to continue to conduct their business and stay safe. And, and that's where these digital tools really were important because we we didn't want them conducting you know physical parties when they can't and we needed to give them ways to do that so you know we're we're continuing to get better analytics around our our uh, our employees as well as we start to reorganize this company um, and we have taken you know the right steps to ensure that during this time of covid 19 that we're especially where people are working. So for instance, some of you know, our distribution centers have, have been able to be open, our manufacturing facilities. We have been making sure that we adjust the pay accordingly, um, that you know they're working in an environment to help us to be successful. And, and we're trying to make sure that we are incenting them the right way. So can I, uh, how, how far along are you on the journey? Are you halfway with the, uh, with the restructuring journey, the turnaround? Oh yeah, I would say that, you know, we, we definitely started it in um, the second quarter in earnest. And we, out of the 180 million commitment we had, we've already delivered 120. So, you know, from a financial standpoint, we're well on the way. <laughs> and uh, we have one more quarter and we plan to deliver the 180 million. However, the turnaround plan, you know, the first focus was on this, this you know, heavy emphasis on profitability improvement. And, you know, what excites us is that we've been able to grow the sales, you know, 21% up in Q3, uh, despite, you know, the efforts we've been having around organizational redesign. And actually confirmed that what we were doing around the organization was the right thing to do. Um, and so the turnaround plan will continue. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say any certain percent of where we are. Um, the financial numbers will, will guide you from that perspective. But, you know, our focus now is turning to opening more access to more consumers and really returning this business back to growth. So we have work to do. Well, uh, before we get to our mentoring round where uh, we might ask you a few more career-related questions. We always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, which is just a, a moment of strategic insight that you experienced along the way during your career. Might have been a Tupperware, could have been uh, much earlier. But there was a moment of strategic insight, and you might have avoided a, a risk, or you might have pursued a new opportunity, whatever it led you to do. What, what would you share with us? Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's much more than just a finance moment. It impacted not only my career, but also how I look at things in my personal life as well. I was in um, Hong Kong and there was a huge conference going on and we, we decided to attend to hear the keynote speaker, but we, we obviously showed up early. It was already standing room only. And there was a speaker already on stage and they were talking about the digital journey. And I'll never forget, this was more than five years ago. And I was standing there and the person on stage made the comment that the individual that was entering the workforce in Asia and specifically China at that point in time had only worked on a mobile device. They'd never had anything but a mobile device. And I thought, wow, that is really an interesting statistic. And I thought about my own journey and I thought, wow, you know, I remember having a black and white TV and then how that turned into a color TV and then how that turned into this amazing computer that sat on a desk and how big it was. And, and, you know, I remember the day that after I lugged this huge computer, I told the story at the beginning of this podcast, right, that I, I used to drag a computer to the airport and I was so happy when these lightweight ones came that you could put on your back. And I thought, wow, my experience would have just assumed everybody was happy to have a computer, right? But the person entering the workforce five years ago, 
grew up on a mobile device. And that became reality to me after I flew back from Hong Kong. Um, I hate Black Friday shopping. I know that's probably terrible, but I don't like the crowds and the people. And so I sat down on my couch after a huge Thanksgiving meal. And I had my mother who was in her 60s and my children who were in their teens. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get like maybe do some Black Friday shopping on Thanksgiving. And this was really before it was popular to buy online. And I'll never forget, I sat there on Thanksgiving and bought my entire Christmas on Thanksgiving because they had amazing sales. And what struck me, I looked around my couch and I was on a mobile you know, device. I was on a, 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 an iPad while using my laptop computer and looked over at my daughter who was also shopping and she had three devices in her hand. And even my 60 year old mother was learning how to do this. And it, I realized the world had changed, like dramatically changed. And so, you know, as a finance person, what I realized is we'd been looking at it wrong the whole time. You know, when you wanted to get a computer upgrade, you're always like, oh, well, you know, a desktop costs $700, but a laptop costs $1,200. But we weren't thinking about the cost of not bringing in the right talent because they saw that desktop as a dinosaur, right? They didn't even know what it was. Like, what's the big box on my desk, right? You know, we were encouraging people to to be sustainable don't bring paper into meetings but yet they couldn't pick up a desktop and take it into a meeting and so we were missing all the hidden costs that were there um, as as finance executives by only thinking about the 700 desktop versus the 1200 laptop and you know it changed my world from thinking holistically about the cost of something and then as i transitioned to the cio i did two things because of that moment the first thing i did is i because it's business continuity planning too. I went across the globe and we replaced all of our desktops other than our manufacturing facilities with laptops. And I looked at my IT team and said, this is really simple. We have one thing to consider as an IT organization, digital first, digital first. And if we're not thinking about being mobile first and digital first, we're behind the power curve. And it was one of the biggest moments of, of my career. When we return, CFO Sandra Harris enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. And we're entering the mentoring round. Sandra, we always ask you to look back to that first time you took on the CFO role. And you did have some earlier tours of duty, but I'll leave it up to you which one you want to share. If you could go back to that first that first week, that first quarter, and tell yourself something, whisper something in your ear, perhaps, what piece of advice would you give yourself? <laughs> so, so I'll definitely use the first week of being the CFO of Tupperware. And 
you know, I, I had a big revelation of, of what was really happening within the company. And um, I, I guess maybe I did tell myself this, but, you know, this is a great iconic brand and this is an amazing opportunity to use the experiences that you've had to help turn this iconic brand around. And when you do, you know, the world's going to know how wonderful this product is and how terrific the people who make this company successful are. And, um, you know, I'd make sure I would tell myself that because I think that for a few weeks there, there was a lot of self-doubt. So um, I think it was really important uh, that you, you know, you execute to, to what your experiences allow you to, and you can really change things. Can I can I ask was it a was it a recruiter who ultimately swung open the door? Uh, yes, actually, for Tupperware it was a recruiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no hesitation, knowing that it was going to be a turnaround, and um, you know it's a great opportunity to to earn the the stripes on your sleeve, but at the same time. It, it can be challenging and no hesitation on your part. Well, I, I love a challenge. I will have to admit that when the recruiter approached me and even with the, the CEO at the time, we thought we had a three-year journey. And so, you know, I thought, wow, okay, new public company CFO. I'd had lots of CFO experience, but not the public company CFO. And I thought, okay, this is great. I've got three years to turn the business around. And so, you know, the reason I gave myself that advice in the last question is that I stepped in and realized it wasn't a three-year journey. I had to, I had to do something within the first year. And so, um, you know, would I have, have made the same decision? I think I would have just because I, I really believe in this iconic brand. We always like to ask uh, finance leaders to reflect a little bit on the personal side. If they have a habit uh, that they or a part of their daily routine, sort of outside the office, uh, but pays dividends uh, to your professional life in some way, perhaps. Is there something that you do that you think over time has allowed you to succeed on the professional side? Yeah, I would love to say it was daily, but I have two things that are just core to who I am because I'm an intense person and I give everything to what I do. And so um, I I did at some point realize that you have to make time for yourself. So I have two things. I do one in the fall and I do the other throughout the year, but mostly after the fall. So I'm an avid college football fan. I mean, just ridiculously dedicated. I went to Clemson. So that speaks volumes. Uh, championship the last few years. (laughs) And so, you know, my family, I am 100% committed to making sure that I go to as many Clemson football games that I can make. And I follow them all the way to the end, whether we win or lose. And, you know, largely, you know, I love Clemson, but I also am very inspired by Dabo's leadership and think, you know, I can learn a lot from how he leads that team. Um, And then, you know, it's this great thing that our family does together and we have a great network of people. And so it keeps me grounded and, and, you know, takes my mind off of everything that I do. And then, you know, when the fall's not here, because I go into a deep depression after football's over, <laughs> I have a place that I bought several years ago because I needed somewhere to put my phone down. And the only place in the world that I do that is on a beach. And so I bought a place in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. Actually, I'm here today and I called it happy day. And it's because my daughter, when she was a little girl, would run into the room on Saturday because her father was home and I was home and she would go, it's a happy day. And so I named my place happy day because it's a place where I can actually put my phone away and forget about it. And I can just go read a book or people watch or do whatever I want, lots of water sports. And and it really does ground me. And so that's, that's what I would recommend is everybody find their, their happy place. Wow. A wonderful answer. Thank you for that. And this is where we ask you if there's a book you'd like to recommend to upcoming finance leaders, and it doesn't have to be a business book. 
But uh, what would you share? Yeah, so when I took on that role as CIO at VF, um, you know, I had a very traditional IT team, you know, IT team that believed in uh, the traditional waterfall approach, take a really long time, you know, ERP implementations. And I knew the task that was there was to change that IT team into a consumer-centric focused organization. And, and so one of the books that I really relied upon was The Five Dysfunctions of a Team uh, by Patrick Lencioni, because I, I really felt that it was critical for me to understand how to work through some of the dysfunctions of the team that I was about to, to take on. And, and it really did help me to um, understand the team dynamics and really take the fast actions and decisions that I needed to. So that's the book I would recommend. Oh, thank you. Thank you for applying it to your real world. That was interesting. Uh, we've had that book before, but uh, that was a great answer. So thank you for that. And finally, we're up to our last question, our final question, where we ask you to look forward for us and share with us your priorities as a CFO over the next 12 months. What would those be? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my priority, I, I've always, I said earlier, one of my themes was building great teams. And I do believe that people make us successful, whether we're companies or even, you know, our personal, people make us successful, the people we surround ourselves with. And so, you know, I, I now have the new responsibility as well as being the chief operating officer. And I would say both on the finance side and the operations side, my task is to, to really build a team. Um, and, you know, that's important to me because teams really do make us successful. CFO Sandra Harris, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.